0: You're listening to the Retro Reprise podcast on nerdylegion.com. Here's your host, Adam S. L. Welcome to Retro Reprise. My name is Adam S. L., and this is the first episode that I'm doing on nerdylegion.com. So I want to take a little bit of time to thank the guys over at Nerdy Legion as well as the guys over at the 2BT podcast. Dave, Steve, and Michael. Michael, who's been uh, really helpful with getting this podcast out, so I want to give a special thanks to him. And of course, I want to thank you guys for checking this podcast out. I have something really cool planned for us today. We're going to be taking a look at music of the uh, Nintendo NES, the Nintendo Entertainment System, versus the Nintendo Famicom, which was essentially the NES in Japan. So to give you guys just a little bit of history on myself, I am a retro game collector. I have about 20 consoles and I'm somewhere around 2,000 games, something like that. I mean, it's it's pretty crazy, uh, and I have very little space. But I've been running a, uh, a YouTube channel, a retro gaming YouTube channel, for about five or six years now. And uh, when this opportunity came for a podcast... I thought this would be the perfect opportunity to jump on that. So, uh, I just wanted to give you guys a little bit of background on myself, but we're not here to talk about me. We're here to talk about some really awesome stuff between the NES and the Famicom. So, I wanted to paint a little bit of a picture about 1985. That's the time that the NES uh, came out in the US. So, at this point in time, the market for video games was, was on a decline. It was part of the, it was sort of the tail end of the market crash of like 82, 83. And, uh, the company Nintendo really was trying to capture the U S market. They had released the Famicom in 1983 in Japan, and that thing was selling amazingly well. And they wanted to get, uh, the U S market in that as well. But at the time, uh, Like I said, we were going through a market crash. There were two big, major things that were happening. One was in arcades. So when video games and arcade machines first came out, uh, they were really popular and family-friendly. And so, you know, Grandma and Grandpa, Mom and Dad, Bobby and Susie, they would all be at the arcade playing video games. Eventually it sort of ran its course sort of like a fad. It, it sort of declined. And then what was left of was, was sort of the scum and villainy of the world, um, did a lot of drug dealers and ne'er do wells and whatnot hanging out in arcades. So, uh, video games saw a decline on the arcade front that way. And then on the home market with consoles, there was another issue that was going on. So Atari, the company that um, most of us, most of us in the late '70s, early '80s, had Atari console. There's also the ColecoVision and the Intellivision that people had, but Atari was really sort of the dominant force in the market. Um, Atari made some bad decisions. It wasn't, uh, you know, we look at video game companies today with things like loot boxes and you know uh, gambling and trying to take advantage of customers and to be perfectly honest with you. Uh, Video game companies were doing this from the beginning, and Atari was doing this kind of stuff way before, uh, you know, EA or anybody else. And what I mean by that was that uh, Atari was doing their best to crank out games as quickly as possible and not have any kind of quality control on them. And what really caused the market crash were a couple of things. A lot of people blame E.T., and E.T. was part of it but it ET was a symptom of a bigger problem uh, one of the worst games to come out for the Atari 2600 was uh, Pac-Man the port of Pac-Man from the arcade and to give you guys an idea of how bad this was the the guy who was programming Pac-Man essentially had created a tech demo uh, to kind of get the feeling of the game and how it was supposed to work and he ended up showing the the tech demo to the higher ups at Atari and they're like great that's good package it let's get it out of here. So what we have for the Atari 2600 for the for the game Pac-Man is actually supposed to be a tech demo. That was never supposed to be released to the public. As a tech demo that's it's a fine You know, it's a a fine game, but it is definitely not even close to what Pac-Man was uh, in the arcades. And uh, there was decision-making like that, and then uh, with the E.T. story, what what went on with that was that uh, one of the programmers was working on a game, uh, had nothing to do with E.T., and Atari was pushing and pushing and pushing to get the E.T. license. And the, almost like the second they got it, they said, okay, we need to have a game out, and we need to have it out in six weeks. And so the programmer essentially turned this other game into E.T. and uh, had it to be able to have it out by the six-week time period. And uh, Atari had made the decision that uh, this was going to be a system seller. Like E.T. was going to be a huge movie, and uh, Atari really wanted to to capture that market and they really thought that the game et was going to be system sellers so they made a ton more games than what consoles had been sold because they thought that was going to sell consoles and uh, that didn't turn out to be the case and uh, people weren't as enamored with uh, et as they thought they would have been and uh, E.T., by the way, is not a bad game. Um, if, you, if you really think about it as sort of a precursor to games like The Legend of Zelda, uh, it really works in that capacity. Uh, you know, it's not as an advanced game, obviously, but you could see where they were starting to go with sort of these adventure games, and, and um, E.T. really had that going for it. I played E.T. a lot as a kid. I actually really loved the game. Uh, but it also it but it gets credited as sort of like the worst game ever, or you know the the game that really killed Atari. It wasn't the game that killed Atari; it was Atari's bad practices that killed Atari. But moving on to 1985. Nintendo's trying to break into the market, um, and they want to sell their video game console. The problem is, because of what went on with Atari and sort of losing the good faith of the buyers and stuff like that, nobody was buying consoles. And toy stores and any kind of department stores that were selling video game consoles, they had a bunch of stock that they could not get rid of. And so... Stores decided they don't want to have anything to do with video game systems, and this made it hugely difficult for Nintendo to actually break into the market. So there was a couple things that they had decided to do, because uh, the the Famicom in Japan uh, was a very tiny system, it's not very big, and the, uh, the different game cartridges that came out for it, they're... Brightly colored, they're you know they're varied. So you could have a red cartridge, a blue one. I've got I've got several uh, Famicom cartridges. I've a pink cartridge, I have a red cartridge. Um, but they were they were obviously marketed towards children. And Nintendo had uh, in its pursuit to gain the U.S. market, they had decided to make several changes to the Famicom for the NES. And uh, one of them was they they changed the shape of the system from a very small like red and white console to a little bit bigger uh, light gray top, dark gray bottom. Uh, It was designed to look like it's uh, an appliance that would go underneath your TV uh, that would sit next to your VCR. In fact, Nintendo used... VCR and VHS cassette tapes to kind of model uh, their system. Uh, they They wanted everything to look uniform. So that's why we got the big gray cartridges because they were they were supposed to look like media that we had already been consuming with like VHS cassette tapes. So that was one angle that Nintendo took and then the other one was Rob the robot. Uh, so the first early consoles came with Rob and uh and that's how they got them into stores essentially as well as implementing a little bit of a, a buyback program if they if their consoles didn't sell then they would buy them back but uh, it really was rob that ended up making those uh consoles push forward so it was it was very interesting they were selling the rob toy essentially but it came with this Nintendo Entertainment System. That's why it was never called a video game console, uh, especially in their marketing. It was an entertainment system. It was supposed to go along with your VCR and your television, and it was something that the, the whole family could, could enjoy, and that's what Nintendo had used for its marketing. So uh, it really was a fascinating way to, to get in, and, and luckily it was very successful. And so that's how we got the NES in the United States. Let's go a little bit further back and talk about the Famicom. Like I said, that was released in 1983 in Japan and sold very, very well. Uh, So if you're not familiar with the way Japanese, you know, kind of culture works, so the Famicom was a mashup of two words, family computer. But it was the family computer, and they just kind of shortened it to Famicom. Some of the biggest differences in the Famicom from the uh, NES was the pin connections. So, a Famicom cartridge has 60 pins and the US uh, NES cartridge has 72 pins. Uh, The reason why I'm bringing up the pins is because this is going to become really important uh, a little bit later down the road. In 1986, uh, Nintendo came out with the Famicom disk system, which was something that we never got to see in the US, but what it was was a floppy disk system that uh, would play games from floppies. They kind of look like uh, two and a quarter inch floppies, if you guys remember those. They were a little bit smaller. I think uh, I think I, th- I want to say like keyboards used a lot of those uh, smaller floppy disks, but they would call them cards. And uh, with the disk system, there was a couple of things that were really, really interesting. So what would fit into the cartridge slot was a, uh, a 32 kilobyte RAM adapter. That's how the system would read the games from the disks. So it would play off the disk system, it would go through this cable, and then into the top of the system like a cartridge, and that's how you would play the games through the, through the Famicom. Now, along with that adapter, they had an ASIC circuit. Uh, Now ASIC stands for Application Specific Integrated Circuit. So this was um, really specifically designed just to handle the Famicom disk system stuff. Uh, It was a disk controller, so it would uh, turn off and on the the disk spinning. But what was really interesting about this is that uh, it also provided additional sound. It contained a wavetable lookup synthesizer. And this is... I'm, I'm not quite sure the best way to put it, but the native Famicom didn't have these sounds, and the way it worked was that there was a certain pin, I believe it was pin number 52, where you could add sound from a different sound source, and uh, then the Nintendo would, would mix it, or the Famicom would mix it in. Now, what was really kind of a bummer was, in the U.S., even though we had 72 pins they never bothered to wire that uh, Pen52, so we never got any of the expanded sound. So we didn't get this wavetable synthesizer uh, or any of this sort of strange FM sound stuff that they would have. But um, there were some games that came out for the Famicom Disk System, uh, along with having all of this additional stuff, they also were able to do saves. That was the benefit of being on a disk. And since we never got a disk system in the US, uh, they had to find other ways of saving games. So uh, I'm going to talk about two games that came out for the Famicom and then the two versions that we got in the US. So um, the two games that I want to talk about right now are Metroid and Zelda. Both of them used uh, save states. They had an ability to save the game at a certain point in time. Uh, But in the U.S., they implemented two different methods of of saving these games. So with Metroid, they implemented a very, (laughs) very long password system, uh, which would kind of get you in the same area you were before. So if you had to turn off the game, you turn it back on, you put in the password. You're kind of close to all the power-ups you had, but it's not exactly there. Uh, But the other thing that they did implement in Zelda was a battery backup. So uh, what's fantastic is great you get to save your game on a cartridge. What's bad is over time that battery drains, and once that battery's dead, then your saves are gone. So it's something that's a common issue nowadays, especially with Game Boy games where uh, the batteries will die. So there's a lot of Pokemon games out there that uh, people have lost their saves on, and uh, they try to go back to it, and they can't save it anymore because the battery's dead. That's what Zelda really... Presented for us in the US, uh, besides having a really cool gold cartridge which was different from the flat boring gray cartridges that we had, it did have a battery backup in it. But these two games being on the Famicom Disk System they were treated to this uh, wavetable synthesizer. And so I've got some uh, great clips to play for you guys. I'm going to, of course, start off with the ones that we got in the U.S. just to kind of refresh your memory. So I'm going to start off with Metroid because I love that game. I remember standing in a Sears at that little demo uh, that had a bunch of games in it. And I would sit there and, and I would actually just listen to the intro music because I thought it was so awesome. Um, but we're going to start off with Metroid just to refresh your memory and then we're going to come back and then we're going to take a look at the Famicom disk system version that uses that wavetable synthesizer. Oh, I don't know about you guys, but that really does bring back uh, memories for me. Just uh, being like seven years old, standing in front of uh, a Nintendo demo console in Sears, uh, listening to that game, it's uh, really amazing. Well, now I've got uh, a treat for you because we've got the Famicom Disk System version. And like I said, this is using that Wavetable synthesizer. Now, I don't know the specifics. I don't know if it's using like an FM synth. I really don't know what it's using. Uh, I had made the assumption that it's an FM synth, but I could be wrong. But uh, check out this version and uh, let me know what you guys think on Twitter. You can always reach me at Retro Reprise on Twitter. So here is the Famicom Disk System version of the Metroid theme. So there's the look at the Famicom Disk System version, uh, which I like it for the most part. There's a weird cutoff towards the end from the uh, the synthesizer bit, but it really is a, a fascinating and different change for the system. Uh, so these next clips that I'm going to play are from the entrance music. Uh, they're very short clips, so I'm just going to play them back-to-back, the original NES version and the Famicom Disk System version. <laughs> I've got uh, two more sound clips that I'm going to do from uh, both different versions. The upgrades also had uh, made use of those synths as well. So again, I'm going to play the US version and then the Famicom Disk System version. So the wavetable synth that they used for this wasn't just used for music, they also used it for a lot of sound effects, and unfortunately I don't have uh, any of the sound effects clips to play you guys. But uh, a game like Metroid actually sounded very different from uh, what we got in the U.S. because the sounds, instead of being within the system natively, it was using the wavetable synth to generate a lot of the laser beams and and creature sounds and stuff like that. So uh, it is a very different version uh, audio-wise than what we got in the U.S. So now we're going to uh, change gears and switch to another Nintendo classic. We're going to be taking a look at The Legend of Zelda. Uh, Now, this game uniquely had a a couple of different things that were going on. Uh, Yes, it used the wavetable synth, but it didn't use it for the entire game. It was predominantly used in the intro, and that was about it. The game generally sounded the same. They did use it on some of the sound effects, but um, not really a whole lot. Now, there are some other things that the Famicom was capable of doing that we uh, didn't do, or that they didn't do in the US. So, on the uh, Famicom system itself, uh, the controller for Player 2 actually has a microphone in it. And there was a bad guy, it looks kind of like a jumping bunny head. And you could actually clear the room if you picked up that controller and screamed into the microphone. Uh, because their ears were sensitive, I, I assume that's what it was. Uh, but you could actually clear the room by doing that. But in the U.S. version, you actually had to go fight the creatures. There was no microphone attachment. Uh, so there's always little little strange things like that that are in these games. But um, let's play the uh, U.S. version of The Legend of Zelda, and uh, then I'm going to be playing the Famicom version. I'll just play them back-to-back back so you can hear the differences right away. Thank you. I also happen to have the sound of the warp whistle or the flute, uh, just so you guys can compare those. Again, these are very, very short clips, so I'm just going to play them back to back so you guys get an idea of what's going on. Uh, but uh, once that's done, we're going to move on to another edition for the Famicom Disk System that we sort of got in the U.S., but uh, it, it didn't affect the system in the same way. So come and take a look at these uh, warp whistles. And uh, let me know what you guys think. So now we're going to step away from the Famicom disk system, and we're going to go into um, chips from video games. So Nintendo was very well known for using cheater chips, what, people, what we refer to now as cheater chips. These were uh, additional chips they would put in cartridges that uh, would take the system past its normal capabilities. And um, the I think the one that people are probably most familiar with is the Super FX chip. The Super FX chip for the Super Nintendo, um, allowing for the game Star Fox to run. Uh, it would ha- have 3D polygons, and you could uh, essentially push the 16-bit system a lot further into uh, territory that we wouldn't see until 32 or 64-bit systems with uh, polygonal games. But Nintendo had actually been doing this for a very long time with their 2D games for for quite a while. Uh, The first chip that I want to talk about is the MMC5. Uh, Now, these were prevalent in both... uh, Well, I don't want to say prevalent. They were in games in both the Famicom and the NES. But um, uh, what the MMC stands for is Memory Management Controller. So the MMC5 is Memory Management Controller. Jeez, that's really hard to say. Memory Management Controller 5. And basically what that would do is allow the system to do more than what it could. But it also added a couple of channels of sound. The Nintendo and the Famicom natively have about five sounds that they can play. And uh, this would add some channels. And again, this goes back to the pins and that pin number 52. Uh, they never bothered to wire that for the NES. So even though we got games that had this MM5C or this MMC5 chip, um, we never got to hear the advantages of what that chip could do. The reason why I'm talking about that chip is because uh, there's one game in particular that I really wanted to show you guys, and uh, that's gonna be from uh, Castlevania 3. Now, in the U.S. version of it, we did get the MMC5 chip. Uh, they used it primarily for switching characters. So in the game, uh, you you play as Christopher Belmont? It's a prequel, yeah. It's Christopher Belmont. And uh, you can, throughout the game, uh, you can get additional characters. You can rescue them, and they join your team. So in order to switch these characters... Uh, the MM5C chip was enabled so you could switch these characters on the fly. That was the primary use of it in the game for the U.S. But in Japan, in their version of the game, they used a, a chip called the VRC6. And this is a copressor chip, as opposed to like a compressor. This is copressor, so it's a, it's a coprocessor. So it would actually lighten the load of the CPU of the Famicom in order to do some of the things that they were doing in that game. So this would allow the switching of characters. And uh, one of the big things that this provided, I believe, yeah, it was two pulse wave channels and a saw wave channel uh, adding to the Nintendo's already uh, use of five uh, channels that it had, or five sounds. So it added an additional three sounds to it. This made the, the soundtrack for the game a lot more interesting in, in Japan than it did in the US. Now, the game sounds fantastic. It's it's actually one of my favorite soundtracks for any video game that's, that's on the NES, but the uh, Japanese version is just amazing. So we're going to start with playing a song from uh, Castlevania III, Dracula's Curse. We're going to play the beginning. This is the opening stage. Uh, stage number one for the game. Just to give you guys a baseline. So here is uh, the beginning from Castlevania 3 Dracula's Curse. now here is the Famicom version. Now I believe there was a soundtrack that was released with this, and they decided to include the Famicom cuts of these songs, but all of them are really amazing and sound fantastic. So listen to the difference in the depth of sound that the, uh, the VRC6 chip adds to this game. And again, like I said, this isn't native to the systems. This was a chip that added these sounds in with the game. Uh, and it's just amazing the, the difference that you can hear from this. Uh, so here is the Famicom version of Castlevania 3, The Beginning. And, uh, let me know what you guys think. And with that, that is going to wrap up my first show. I want to thank you guys again for joining me. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. Uh, I also want to thank the guys at NerdyLegion.com as well as Michael. Here's a on-air wink for you. Thanks so much for helping me put this together. So, guys, thank you for joining me, and I will be talking to you next week. Retro Reprise is hosted and produced by Adam S. L., Published by NerdyLegion.com. Visit YouTube.com forward slash Retro Reprise. Follow the show on Twitter and Instagram at Retro Reprise. For business inquiries, email the show at RetroReprisal at gmail.com. Game
1: over.